I think that is a wonderful story, and it does. It goes right along with the story that we are going to hear from the book of Acts. Uh, Before we begin reading in chapter 11, I just want to um, give you a little heads up that what we are going to hear is actually a repetition of the story that is told in chapter 10, immediately preceding it. Um, And this is Peter uh, sharing what has happened in chapter 11, uh, describing what happened to him in chapter 10 when he experienced it, and hopefully that will become a little more clear. So let us begin at verse 1 in chapter 11, and let us listen for the word of God. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? And then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced and they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. We're going to spend a little bit of time today on a topic that I think is absolutely critical for where we are, not only as a people of God, but also a people in a nation that is in a very, shall we say, interesting political situation. 
And it is very timely, I think, that we have this story from the book of Acts. And we've got before us a conflict in the early church. And so we're going to begin, however, with politics. Um, Brother Clay put in my hands this week an op-ed piece that was written by David Brooks, who I think is a wise voice in these days. And David Brooks makes this observation that the crisis that exists right now in our political life could maybe, maybe be solved if someone was elected president and they went to Washington and spoke to the leaders in government and said, you know what, we need to quit doing this stuff, so we're going to change the rules about how we deal with each other. And so Brooks says, eh, It might trickle down a little bit. But he posits that the problem with that notion is that our political life is embedded in our society. What arises in politics arises from our culture. So what Brooks is positing is that political change is going to come from Lots of little changes in how we deal with each other. And he begins to build on this. And he says that civic life has suffered. And he quotes a book called The Vanishing Neighbor, written by an author named Mark Dunkelman. And Dunkelman argues that people are good at tending their inner ring relationships, their family and friends, and that they're pretty good at tending to outer ring relationships. Their hundreds of Facebook acquaintances, their fellow progressives, or their Ted or Harley fans. But Americans, Brooks says, spend less time with middle ring township relationships, the PTA or the Neighborhood Watch. Middle-wing relationships help people become skilled at deliberation. The guy sitting next to you at the volunteer fire company may have political opinions you find abhorrent, but you still have to get stuff done with him week after week. Middle-wing relationships also diversify the sources of identity. You might be an O'Rourke, an Irish Catholic, and a professor, but you are also a citizen perhaps of the Montrose neighborhood in Houston. With middle ring relationships deteriorating, Americans have become worse at public deliberation. People find it easier to ignore inconvenient viewpoints and facts. Partisanship becomes a pre-conscious lens through which people see the world. In other words, if so-and-so gets elected president, I'm moving to Canada. Right? If my team doesn't get in, I'm quitting. Now, I bring this up because I think it is, it goes very well with the scripture because at its heart, What Brooks is dealing with, and also what our scripture is dealing with, is conflict in how we deal with it. And in looking at how Brooks frames this, I would posit that church congregations are also middle ring relationships. Okay? Middle ring communities 
We are sitting here in this room this morning, and we may think that we're kind of sort of like-minded, but actually in reality, we've got as many different variations and perspectives and opinions as there are people sitting here. There are all sorts of nuance. But I think that that tends to scare us. How many of you have sat in a committee meeting in which a a topic gets a little tense and the chair says, we're going to table this. It's a little hot right now. Anybody want to? I've sat in a lot of those. Um, But the thing is that Scripture gives us some models for how to deal with differences of opinion and perspective and also how to deal with conflict. And some of these models in Scripture are actually better than others, right? But as people of the church, particularly in modern times, we haven't, I don't think, availed ourselves of the tools in Scripture, that are there for us to use in dealing with such difference. So I'm going to put you all on the spot like I did at the early service, and please talk, please talk, okay? What are some of the complaints we hear from people who are not in the church about people in the church? Hypocrites, close-minded, what else? Not friendly. What else? Self-righteous and what? Judgmental. I'm in a service. There was one. Know-it-all. Yes. Yes. I'm, y'all are giving me stuff for a sermon series. And, it, and, and this series, it would go on for at least three months, right? And the thing is, is that there's some validity to these accusations about church people. And I think a lot of it has to do with how we deal with or don't deal with conflict. And here's, here's another little thing. Um, we have a relative on my husband's side of the family, was not raised uh, churched, and um, she was going to come visit. And she wanted, she wanted to come to, to church um, where I served, and but she asked me, she said, is it okay if I come because I don't have church clothes? I, okay, so, I, number one, I find it really, really funny. I mean, how many of you here have on church clothes? How many of you here have on something comfortable? I do. I've got on my uniform here under what I wear every Sunday morning. Um, It seems to me that what is underlying this is something that's actually very sobering. Is the assumption, and, and usually assumptions have got a little bit of truth to them, is that church people are concerned with appearances, okay, And that church people tend to kind of smooth things over in the interest of uniformity. And then what's underlying that as well, too, is an avoidance of conflict. But the thing is, conflict is going to happen. 
You put humans in a room together or in a building together and conflict will happen. It is what we do with the conflict that is absolutely critical. And my friends, I'm going to say this. Is that if people in the church handled conflict better, we would indeed be a city on a hill, would we not? Other people in the world could look to people in the church and say, you know what, they know how to do it right. Let's go to them and ask them how we need to deal with this conflict. And this story that we have heard is one of those tools. And what has happened is that in chapter 10, Peter is in a house in Joppa. Peter, who has been given the power of the Holy Spirit to go and preach the gospel. Peter, who has grown way beyond the cowering, afraid man in the courtyard denying that he even knew Christ. He is spreading the gospel and he's praying on the roof and he has a vision. And he discerns that this is a vision from God. And the vision is to prepare him to go to a household and to share the gospel and to share God's redemptive plan with a Gentile household. The details that we don't get in chapter 11 are in chapter 10. The household that God is sending Peter to is the household of a centurion of the Roman army in Caesarea. Let that sink in for a little bit. Not only is this guy a Gentile, he's a commander in the occupying force that the Jews want thrown out. He's one of them. He's not one of us. But when God sends him there, God tells Peter, you don't pay attention to this us and them stuff. And of course, Peter begins to protest because he is an observant Jew. Even though he professes Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, to be the anointed one of God, to bring God's salvific plan to the world, Peter says, wait a little bit, I've never eaten an unkosher thing in my life. Because Jews, during this time, because of the purity codes, they did not associate with Gentiles. They did not sit at the table and share a meal with them. They were considered them and unclean. But God sends the vision to prepare Peter's heart to be able to accept the mission that he wants to do, or that he wants Peter to do, and to send God's message of salvation beyond the Jews. Now this is where the conflict begins to come in. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, the Roman centurion, baptizes all of them, and the word gets back to the apostles that are in Jerusalem. And these are all observant Jews. And they summon Peter to Jerusalem to get him to explain his actions. I mean, after all, this is Peter on whom 
The church is to be built. The rock, as Jesus calls him. The pillar. And he has done the unthinkable. He has walked into a, into a Gentile household and he's baptized them. And so when they summon Peter there, it's very astonishing how Peter responds when they call him to account. He doesn't respond with an elegant argument with three points. He doesn't respond um, in a debating fashion in which he feels on the defensive and they are on the offensive. He starts telling them the story of his vision. I was, I was praying on the roof at a house in Joppa and I had this vision. And he goes through and he tells them what has happened and their response is astonishing. It says that they were silenced. But they aren't silenced because they're shamed. They're silenced because Peter has shared this story and because Peter has invited them into the story, they see God at work and they begin to praise God and to say, who are we to thwart God's work? See, there's something about, there's something about story that's very different from argument and debate. Have you watched a presidential debate lately? And my friends, you know, our quote-unquote presidential debates aren't debates. I mean, they really aren't. They're very, very staged. Uh, I don't think we've had a true debate since the mid-19th century. Anyway, but the Democratic Party debates are always on different nights, Then the Republican Party debates, they are kept absolutely separate. And then when you watch each party's debate, I mean, they're standing separately. You know, everything is kept very separate. And when you get right down to it, debate divides, does it not? And also argument. Argument usually puts one on the defensive and then one is on the offense. But what story does is it invites the listener into the teller, the teller's life. And indeed, our Luke 4 initiative teams, they are using story to build relationships so that we can bring about much-needed change. Now, of course, Jesus Christ was a master at story, was he not? Used parables. Man had two sons. There was an owner of a vineyard. And one day he walked out and on it goes. And then the listeners are thinking, yeah. Yeah. We see Caroline up here with the children and she will ask sometimes, I wonder where you see yourself in this story. Because stories build relationship. Stories can actually help us deal with conflict. Back in March, I attended a five-day workshop on conflict mediation. And as this workshop went on, 
It was taught uh, by Richard Blackburn, who is the executive director of the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center. And as this workshop went on and we began doing role plays, it really kind of hit me between the eyes. And this is about the church with a capital C. My friends, if we do not learn how to deal with conflict in a healthy way, we will cease to exist. Because in these role plays that we were doing, it became obvious that people in the church were holding on to hurts for decades. And I want to share one of these little role plays with you. And it's really kind of humorous. Um, I, this was our manual for the week. Um, and I, it's copyrighted, so I couldn't make any copies. So just, just listen to this story. This is called The Youth and Deacons at Odds. Here's the background. The youth group at Crossroad Church raised funds to buy copies of the Herald Press hymnal Sing and Rejoice for congregational use along with the regular hymnal. More than a year after the congregation began using the new books, someone protested to the Board of Deacons that hymn number 67 in Sing and Rejoice, Lord of the Dance, was inappropriate. They asked that something be done about it. After discussion, the board of deacons agreed. The board gave the youth three choices. Now, youth, I hope y'all are listening to this. Tell me what you think about it after. These were the three choices the youth group was given. Number one, tear out the pages of the offending hymn from each sing and rejoice hymnal. Number two, Paste the two pages of hymn 67 together. Or, three, withdraw the hymn from congregational use. The youth group has not responded to this directive. On a recent Sunday, members arrived at church and discovered the following message stamped on page 67 of Sing and Rejoice. Quote, we consider this song to be unworthy of our Lord, Board of Directors, end quote. And so then we were to uh, divide up into groups and take roles, some of us as mediators, some of us as a member of the Board of Deacons, some of us as youth members, and attempt to mediate this conflict. Here's the kicker, my friends. This is really funny, right? I looked at Richard and I said, did this really happen? He said, "Uh uh-huh. Every role play that we did in here is something from his 35 years of conflict mediation. Now, we are human. There will be conflict. What we do with it is going to be a sign either of our unfaithfulness as disciples or a sign of our faithfulness as disciples. We have stories in our own scripture that give us examples of both. We have skills that we can learn or that we can reappropriate 
or that we can bring to the fore again if we have not used them in a while to be able to deal with conflict. And let me remind you, the cross has a right and a left. It has a top part and it has a bottom part. And all are connected at the heart of our crucified Lord. Our call as disciples of Christ is not to be uniform. God created this world in all of its rich diversity. God loves diversity. It's what we do with the conflicts that arise from that that are signs of our faithfulness. It is my prayer that we are the people who say, we, we can get beyond whatever it is that is causing conflict and that others look in and say, man, that's a cool group of people because look how they handle stuff. They handle stuff openly, honestly. And then we can truly be the city on the hill that God desires us to be. May we, my friends, be people of peace and reconciliation. Amen.